The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. It's good to see those of you who are able to join us here in person. Those of you at home, good for you to see me this morning. I actually wish we all could be together here and see each other face to face as we seek our Lord and Savior face to face here together on Sunday morning. Welcome. I'm glad you're here to join us. Well, last week, my brother Rene preached from Acts 2, 36 through 41, and he helpfully pointed us to the miracle of Christian conversion. Among the signs and wonders recorded in the first two chapters of Acts, we have the wonder of the miracle of 3,000 people repenting of sin and believing in Jesus. What we see in our text today is that conversion was only part one of a two-part miracle. Part one of a two-part work of the Holy Spirit. So turn to chapter 2, verse 42 in your Bibles, and we'll read that together. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Our verse this morning begins with a connecting word, and. What is happening in verse 42 is meant to be understood in light of what's happening in verse 41. They go together. The two-part evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in these people is that the miracle that begins at conversion, part one, flows into the miracle of community, part two. The moment a child is born, life expresses itself immediately. The baby moves, cries, desires food. For these early Christians, when they received new life in Christ, it expressed itself immediately in a shared life. Spiritual activity has social effects. When the Spirit fills us, it draws us together. So in evidence, the Spirit is at work it is an evidence that spirit is at work when new creations in Christ form new communities in Christ. It's God's intention to not merely save individuals, but also to stitch these individuals together into a new society. And we have a clue to this in verse 40 in chapter 2. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying... Save yourselves from this crooked generation. The reason that save yourselves from this crooked generation was part of, P- of Peter's gospel witness is that conversion involves a calling out from one people into a new group of people. Salvation is not just private and individual. It's also a matter of public identification with others that have received the same salvation. For the Christian, no matter what different experiences you come from, you, have, you all have one all-encompassing experience in common, being cut to the heart that awakened you to your sin and to the glory and beauty of Jesus. What the believers and acts now have in common naturally binds them together into a common life. So when the Spirit is poured out, it is not only beliefs 
that change. It is activities that change. It's relationships that change. Christianity is confessional. It's a set of beliefs and adherence to truth. It's also relational, walking in love. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And the evidence that we mean it, that we are true confessors, is found in the nature of our relationships. As it says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love does not know God because God is love. The commentator Eckhard Schnabel says this verse, quote, is not just historical reporting. It's a statement about the authenticity of the Spirit's work in God's presence, the priorities of life together as Christians, and a picture into how the church grew. When the Spirit is working in us, it will draw us into this kind of life together that we see in Acts 2.42. So my sermon this morning has three parts. Part one, points. One, the shape of community. Two, obstacles to community. And three, power for community. The shape, obstacles, and power. Before we dive in more, let's pray together. Father, we are here looking at your Spirit's work. And here I ask that you, your Spirit would do a work now, among us, in us. Illuminate the truth to us that it would affect our hearts and move into our life together here at this church. So Father, come and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when these Christians come together, what do they do? Verse 42 is not outlining a kind of weekly worship service that we're accustomed to today. That would be to read modern expressions back into the text. There's no reason to exclude these elements from the weekly corporate gathering. But this this text is explaining something more. Don't think of this as an hour and a half event each week. If we peek ahead in verse 46 to 47, we see that these Christians were doing these things day by day together. This was not just a weekly hit of word, prayer, and fellowship. They brought these activities into everyday life together, and we should do the same. We should be doing intentional spiritual good to each other in smaller groups day by day throughout the week, not just when we come together like this in a corporate Gathering. So let's look at these five shapes of community mentioned in this text. First shape, devoted. These Christians were not casual or intermittent in these practices. They were deeply held priorities. And for at least two reasons. One, their need. And two, their joy. One, their need. Since the devil is devoted to our demise... We need to be devoted to the people and practices that will resist the devil's destructive work and put us in the flow of God's redemptive work. This is hard. We need social reinforcement if we're going to do that. And second, their joy. These weren't dead rituals, social formalities, 
or drab duties. These early Christians were meeting together out of an overflow of joy. Again, peeking ahead, verse 46 says, these people received their food with glad and generous hearts. There was an eagerness, an enthusiasm for what they were doing together. Second shape of community, the apostles' teaching. These people gathered around shared norms handed down to them by the apostles. The first century Christians learned the apostolic teaching by literally listening to the apostles teach. Acts 5.42 says this, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In large temple gatherings, informal settings, and small home gatherings, informal settings, the apostles taught the people. And we receive this apostolic teaching through the Bible. Whether new babes in the faith or seasoned saints near the end of life, we never stop craving spiritual food, never stop needing spiritual food. A few quick reasons to go deep in the Bible together. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It profits us. Scriptures profit us. And they train us. It's our guide. We need training. A second reason, it's tragic to have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Romans 10.2. Third, you learn so you can help others. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15. And a fourth reason, you press into more spiritual freedom. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When we read the Bible together, others can draw things out we wouldn't see ourselves. And we have a richer experience of hearing God's voice and seeing Jesus. The third shape is fellowship. The word translated as fellowship has a sense of a harmony being created by a shared purpose or doing a work together. Or it's to share with someone in something. Fellowship has a purpose beyond fellowship. It's not just hanging out to hang out. A quote from C.S. Lewis helps us understand some of the character of what that word fellowship means. And he says this, People who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth? Would it be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. Though affection, of course, may, there would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. So fellowship forms around a common fundamental interest and goal. As Christians, 
We fellowship around a common belief that centers on the personal work of Jesus. Our partnership, our fellowship is in the gospel of Philippians 1.6. And we fellowship around a common mission to glorify God by being disciples of Jesus together who make disciples of Jesus. And while fellowship doesn't center on relationships, it can't help but be very relational. One of the deepest longings of the human heart is for relationship. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, a man or woman, rich or poor, young or old, no matter what ethnic or or cultural outlook you have, we all crave relationship. This feature of the human personality works itself out differently person to person. And of course, we also need solitude. Different people have different capacities, but humans are irreducibly and persistently relational beings. I say this because God himself is relational. God as triune is relational in his very essence. The one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And being created in God's image, we too are relational in our essence. To live in strict isolation is dehumanizing. Solitary confinement is seen as an increased level of punishment because it forces us into an existence that's contrary to our nature. More positively, our inborn relationality is a reason why when children see a toy at the store, say, Mom and Dad, look at this Batman Lego set. Or why, if we see a beautiful sunset, we turn to someone or want to, Say, look at the beautiful pastel colors of of orange and and purple in the sky. We know as a matter of instinct that sharing a joy increases that joy. And we only share a joy if we have relationship or a connection, some place to share it. And as sharing joy increases joy, sharing pain decreases pain. When we can turn to someone who will listen with genuine interest into our pain. It may not take the hurt away, but it can uh, be like a release valve that releases pressure. And if the pain doesn't go away, that pressure release, the pressure, that relief is from at least someone else is sharing in that pain with us, is carrying that burden with us. We are not alone in that pain. And a powerful venue that can deepen relationships is table fellowship, sharing meals together. That's the next shape, shape number four, the breaking of bread. It was a common practice in the early church for communion to be part of eating a common meal together. So commentators have mixed views on exactly what breaking of bread means in this text. It could just be a common meal, it could just be communion, or it could be both of those. Though the text isn't conclusive, what exactly this is describing, at the very least, they're sharing a common meal together. Eating together was a regular part of their shared life. And even if it was just a common meal, there's probably some kind of remembrance of the personal work of Jesus because they were meeting in Jesus' name. Regardless, sharing a meal together has spiritual and practical significance. Spiritually, the Old Testament dietary laws, 
Old Testament dietary laws were meant to signal who was in, who was out. What you ate and who you ate with was a big deal. That's why there was sharp controversy when Jesus would share meals with tax collectors and sinners. Those people should be out, but you're acting as if. Why are you eating with them? A spiritual significance. Practically, meals grease the rails for a deeper life together. It causes us to linger in such closeness. It's, it's awkward not to talk. It's hard not to talk. It naturally lends itself to deeper relationships. The first couple of years, my wife and I led a small group. We didn't have a meal as an aspect of our small group time. When we introduced that, we noticed quickly relationships became more deep, more quickly, just by having a shared meal together. So as mentioned in verse 46, when they shared these meals, it was with glad and generous hearts. So I think it's right to describe these times of meal sharing as substantive conviviality centered on Jesus. Substantive conviviality centered on Jesus. The last shape, fifth shape, the prayers. To say the prayers other than prayer suggests maybe a set of prayers that they would use often, maybe certain practices of prayer, or maybe a set time of prayer, like when, see, it was uh, Peter and John went to the temple at the time of prayer in Acts 4, Acts 3, 1. That doesn't mean that spontaneous and less structured prayer was excluded. Prayer was also an important life part of their shared life together. In verse, chapter 1, verse 14, they prayed while waiting for the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, they prayed as they sought the, to elect a replacement for Judas as an apostle. In chapter 4, verse 23 through 31, they prayed for boldness to keep witnessing about Jesus as they faced persecution. So knowing their need, these people were always asking for God's help. But prayer is more than just asking for help. As my friend and fellow pastor Bud Burke told me recently, prayer also has a relational dynamic as it brings us into fellowship with Jesus. In prayer, we are talking to someone who loves us and who we love. From this dynamic, we have what Pastor Bud calls the relational joy of prayer. I love that phrase. The relational joy of prayer. So in summary, what kind of community does the Spirit pour out? A generous, tight-knit, truthful, prayerful, glad-hearted, meal-sharing kind of people. This was an enriched and relationally sticky church. And I want that. But now we get hit with point two, obstacles. Point number two, obstacles. Every individual Christian and every church has their failures and inconsistencies. As, if, as we see in a few chapters in Acts, the community is burdened by sin. The church is burdened by sin. Sin and circumstances complicate community. A book, a book title captures this well. Maybe you've read Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. There's a truth to that. It's hard. And there are several obstacles that we could draw out this morning. There's a challenge of connecting in a big church. It's always hard when you're big to try and 
meet people and form relationships and get into community. Or a second obstacle, our own pride. Our own pride that makes us overly idealistic and then critical of community. Our expectations are too high and our forbearance is too low. Or a third obstacle, consumerism. Looking for that designer group that will provide an extraordinary social experience at a low cost to you. Consumerism. I want to focus on something different than those three things this morning. I want to focus on the obstacle of fear. The obstacle of fear. To live in community takes courage. Again, C.S. Lewis has a helpful word for us when he says this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. The only thing worse than the broken heart is a heart that's so hard it's unbreakable. I think that's a bit of what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. All relationships, even healthy ones, require risk. If you love anyone, you're going to get hurt. Sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, sometimes both. Sometimes we take a risk only to find our love has not returned to us. Or worse yet, it's selfishly used against us. I assume we've all had painful relational experiences that make us hesitant to jump into life together. And these moments of relational pain are the devil's playground to spin webs of deception about who God is, about who you are in Christ. And that can at times give fear a mastery over us that pulls us away from the healthy and restorative expressions of life together. I'll give an example of what I'm talking about from my own life. A few years ago, I had a, had a season of counseling. I was going to go one or two times just to let someone look under the hood and give me some fresh insight in how I'm doing spiritually, emotionally. And it turned into a longer season than one or two meetings and put his finger on an event that happened in my life when I was six years old that has uh, limited some of the freedoms, has kept me from living out some of the freedom I have in Jesus. So when I was six years old, that's funny, 40 years later, I still feel a little bit of something from this. When I was, when I was six years old, we moved to a new town. And, uh, of course, I wanted to make friends. At, at the time, my prized possession was a Baltimore Orioles batting helmet. I wasn't an Orioles fan at the time. I'm not now. But 
that black batting helmet with the orange triangle on it and that goofy looking bird I thought was the coolest thing when I was six. So I saw these two boys my age playing catch with the baseball in their backyard next to my backyard. So I grabbed my batting helmet. I grabbed my glove thinking they're going to they're gonna love this batting helmet. And when I got out there, they didn't let me play catch with them. They played keep away from me. In time, they took my batting helmet. They played keep away with my batting helmet. They kicked it back and forth and broke it to pieces. And I, I remember, I, I, I picture myself uh, running home, feeling sad and feeling mad. I had, in my childlike innocence, expected to make connection, expected to make friends, and I failed. It didn't happen. I was met with rejection. I think Satan saw an opportune moment to spin some deception. This is who you are. This is who God is. You can't make friends. You can't connect with people. You'll always be an outsider. That's who you are. And when I met with the counselors, we started to untangle some of this stuff. I didn't just cry most of the times I was in his office. I wept most of the times I was in that office. I wrestle with a bit of social anxiety. That kind of stems back to some of this stuff that happened then. That is a somewhat normative experience in childhood. That doesn't always affect people in the same way. But Satan used something in an attempt to undermine a good work that God is going to and is doing. Maybe some of you can relate with that. Even though I'm the pastor for small groups, and I believe firmly in the biblical necessity of relational discipleship, part of my particular fight for faith is to have a relational limp. How ironic. We all need courage to live in community, even your pastor for small groups. Where do we find it? How will we persist in seeking to live life together as a family at Bethlehem, even though we may have been failed by others in the church? And probably will be failed in the future. How will we overcome shame or disappointment at our own individual failures of cultivating community? Our own failures of not inviting people in as we ought, as we could. To sum it up by this one question, what will weaken our fears and strengthen our love? What will weaken our fears and strengthen our love? And Martin Luther King Jr. had a good answer for that. Point three, the power for community. There's a book called Strength to Love that has a collection of King sermons. And a guy from my small group printed out this, thanks Eric Iverson if you're here or there, uh, printed out a chapter from that book called Antidotes for Fear and brought it to group. I found King's words so eloquent and moving, I'll risk quoting him at length here. But he says this. This is where strength to love comes from. 
All too many people attempt to face the tensions of life with inadequate spiritual resources. Irreligion, hear this false narrative. Irreligion would have us believe that we are orphans cast into the terrifying immensities of space in a universe that is without purpose or intelligence. Such a view drains courage. It exhausts energies. But there's a different narrative than that. He says this. This universe is not a tragic expression of meaningless chaos, but a marvelous display of orderly cosmos. Above the manyness of time stands the one eternal God with wisdom to guide us, strength to protect us, and love to keep us. He says this. With a surging fullness, he is forever moving toward us. With a surging fullness, he is forever moving toward us, seeking to fill the little creeks and bays of our lives with unlimited resources. Any man who finds this cosmic sustenance can walk the highways of life without the fatigue of pessimism and the weight of morbid fears. The confidence that God is mindful of the individual is of tremendous value in dealing with the disease of fear. For it gives us a sense of worth, of belonging, and an at-homeness in the universe. So how will we persist and seeking to live out Christian community together at Bethlehem, even when it's hard, even when we're afraid, even when, we, when we've been failed by people. I'll put it this way. By letting Jesus be Jesus, and let the church be the church. What I mean by that is if you seek to fill your relational cravings with your brothers and sisters in the church, with your brothers and sisters in the church instead of Jesus, you will crush them. They can't do it. If you expect yourself to satisfy the relational cravings of your brothers and sisters in the church, you will crush yourself. You can't do it. The power to pursue community will come from the understanding that our craving to be fully known, our craving to be fully accepted is so strong, church people can't do it for us. Only Jesus can do that. Once you rest in all that Jesus is for you relationally, once you understand the intensity of Jesus' commitment to you, the intensity of Jesus' affection for you, you may still be affected by a fear of loss, but you are no longer controlled by a fear of loss because you have a love you cannot lose. If you are alone or if you feel alone, you have one who is closer than a brother. Think about that. Imagine Jesus forever moving towards you with a surging fullness. Out of the fullness of his joy, he is forever moving towards you. Not away. What else could satisfy you more? Who else? could satisfy you more. And this is yours in the gospel. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him 
and he with me. You always have someone who is breaking bread with you. You are never alone at the table, even when you are alone. And Jesus doesn't save you and move on. Jesus saves you and moves in. He moves in. He comes all the way to you. He knocks on your door to share a meal with you. Are you leaving him at the door? Are you afraid that you're not measuring up? Are you afraid of being cast out because others have cast you out? Are you afraid of not being cool? Are you afraid of not being able to carry on the conversation, having awkward moments of silence? Are you afraid of not being funny enough and being liked? Jesus doesn't place his love on you because you are enough in anything. He knows you are lacking. And he chooses to put his affections on you just because it gives him pleasure to put his affections on you. Stop working so hard to try to be enough. You'll never get there. And that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for people that will repent and have faith who are not enough. This is how we overcome our fears. The only way to strengthen love is through love. And we find the strengthening love at its most pure, at its most potent in the person and work of Jesus. And it's by pressing into the steadfast love of Jesus for us that we will find the security and the courage to press into relationship with each other. For this, we need the Holy Spirit to pour out on us. For this, we need the miracle of conversion to flow into the miracle of community. Let me pray for us. God, there's no better thing in the world than to be loved by you. It has been said that heaven is a world of love. All of our cups will be overflowing because we are with you. There are no more obstacles. We experience the love from you in new ways and we can love each other in new ways. And God, here, now, this time, I ask for more of heaven on earth. I ask for your spirit to do a work to fill our hearts with more love. That we would care for one another and point each other to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.